0: Did you know that the Bible mentions over 3,000 individual people? We're all captivated by the stories of Moses, Noah, Mary, and Joseph, and John the Baptist, but what about the thousands of overlooked and underestimated characters who are part of the stories we aren't so familiar with? Each one of them is loved by God and made in His image, just like the characters we already know, and just like us. Their stories hold a mirror up to our own lives and in the process help us see the image of God in the people around us every day. So, join us for a little people watching as we uncover the stories of these humans of the Bible. Well, hello, Grace Chapel. I'm Tim Galley. I'm one of the pastors here, and I serve as the pastor of Group Life. And though I've been serving in groups uh, since 2011 here, uh, my role has evolved uh, as we've undertaken a new ministry model. And I have to tell you, I'm really excited about this. Uh, This summer, Pastor Cheryl and myself have been redesigning groups from various angles and various levels. Uh, We are rewriting our new leader training material. We're putting together a catalog of content, uh, new studies that you can use in your groups And we're just really looking forward to a really solid, fresh start for all of our groups as we begin in September. And I'm grateful that we have the month of August to finish up some of these ends. And that also gives you guys a chance to make sure that you can plug into a group, maybe even begin a group. And if you have any questions, know that we would love to connect with you on that. But I'm excited. Before I came to Grace, I was a youth pastor in this wonderful church in New Jersey. And we had a long history of mission trips that we were in the process of rethinking. Similar to conversations here, uh, we wanted to make sure that our students were not just consuming some type of an experience, but that they were really being attentive to what God was trying to show them and also trying to show us. We wanted more of a relationship with the people that we were serving and the people that we were serving alongside, and we had a lot of work to do. So I want to take you to this pivotal scene that in my life and in our search for a mission trip, I'm in my church office and I have spread out all the different brochures and mission trip literature that you can find. It's on my desk and filing cabinets, shelves, carpets. The room is just littered with hundreds of brochures. And I got these brochures from a youth pastor conference that I had just attended in Pittsburgh. And before I left for that conference, I sat down with my parent committee, and they said to me, Tim, we want to make sure that we're on the same page. We want to make sure that we can find a trip that represents this new missions philosophy that we're looking for. We need it to be affordable. We want it to be fresh and challenging. Oh, and of course, we want it to be safe. And the chairman of my my committee, she like leans over, and she's like, Tim, I want it to be safe. She said it so terrifyingly, and we're talking about safety. It was like, what quite the moment. And so I had to take a picture of that moment to show you all. That's, That's Sue. That's Sue. Safety. Got it. I mean, I'm going on this trip too, you know, so I wanted to be safe as well. But upon returning, I had settled on these two great trip options. One was to Costa Rica to do children's ministry, and the other was to Belize to partner with a missionary doing community development, and they were great options. Both trips had great track records. They had provided us with pictures of the accommodations. They were affordable. They were just fantastic. And I'm there in my church office, and I make this critical mistake. I decide to pray about it and I say, Lord, what do you want us to do this summer? Now, I assumed that the Lord knew that I meant exclusively between between one of these two options, (laughs) but he took me back to this this conversation that I had in Pittsburgh along one of the walls of the exhibition hall with this guy named Nick. And Nick says, our greatest need is actually in the Bahamas. And I chuckled to myself, knowing full well that my New Jersey church is gonna think like, oh yeah, I'm sure Tim does wanna go to the Bahamas on a mission trip. And I tuned back in when he started talking about an AIDS camp. And I thought to myself as I was tuning back in, did he say aid as in relief? Or AIDS as in Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome? That doesn't sound safe. I could picture Hulk Hogan coming out of nowhere and like clotheslining lining me. He shared with me the long-term vision and, and what they wanted to do that summer. The, their goal was to build a cement sidewalk so the residents could, could get to the bathhouse safely. Many of them were confined to, to broken wheelchairs and, and had trouble moving along the path with their walkers. It was a difficult walk and many of them would, would skip going to the bathhouse altogether, which of course would lead to a number of other health issues. He mentioned that their their health was so fragile that we were actually a greater risk to them than they were going to be to us. I politely took the brochure, I put it in the back of my folder, but I knew right then and there that this was not going to be the trip for us. The groups that go to that, they're like the super Christian youth groups, and I don't know who they are, but, but they weren't us. We were going to go to Costa Rica, or we were going to go to Belize. And then I started praying about it. Lord, what what do you want us to do? And I couldn't shake this feeling of feeling this burden and this calling to go there. And I spoke to my wife, Susan. I spoke to our pastor there, Sam, and trusted elders and trusted friends. And one by one, they kept saying the same thing. If the Lord is leading you, that's where you have to go. So I made that, the decision that we were going to serve at the AIDS camp. And we continued through the process with the parent committee. And there was a lot of support for me personally, but there was a lot of concern for the trip, understandably. The Hulk Hogan mom, she was really great. She made things easier for me. She didn't body slam me or even shame me. But I did feel their concern. And because they were so good to me, I felt that I disappointed them. I mean, I literally walked into a giant room with 100 mission trip organizations and 1,000 trips, and I walked out with this one. I felt like I disappointed them. And there I was, sending out a letter to all the youth group families, inviting them to join this team. I'll tell you the rest of the story later, but I felt like I was caught in the middle of it all. I mean, on one side, I had parents and leaders with legitimate concerns about safety and philosophy. On the other side, I felt the Lord's leading. There was the need to improve our mission trip philosophy, the need to keep it affordable, the obvious need to keep it safe. There was my need to remain employed. And none of that, none of that is mutually exclusive until you cross this threshold of being convinced that God is telling you to place this value above all the other values. I felt caught in the middle, in the middle. You've been caught in the middle. The middle is where you have these competing loyalties that are in conflict with each other. They want you to take their side exclusively. Hey, you're one of us. Stand here with us. I mean, I bet you've been caught in many middles, caught in the middle of family dynamics, caught in in tricky friendship situations, caught in the mess at work between your boss and fellow employees and customers. There's being caught in the middle, the significant conversations going on in our faith community, caught in the middle of our politically polarized world, caught in the middle. Friends, would you take a moment and think of a situation that right now you feel caught in the middle of. What are you caught in the middle of? In our series, Humans of the Bible, we've been looking at the unsung yet fascinating heroes of Scripture. And I want to tell you the story of someone who was also caught in a very complicated middle. And in that uncomfortable spot, made a remarkable discovery. And her name is Abigail. The story of Abigail is from 1 Samuel 25, and I want us to just jump right in Samuel died and the whole country came to his funeral. Everyone grieved over his death and he was buried in his hometown of Ramah. Meanwhile, David moved again, this time to the wilderness of Maon. There was a certain man in, in, in Maon who carried on his business in the region of Carmel. He was very prosperous, 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and it was sheep shearing time in Carmel. The man's name was Nabal, fool, a Calebite, and his wife's name was Abigail. The woman was intelligent and good-looking, the man brutish and mean. David, out in the backcountry, heard that Nabal was shearing his sheep and sent ten of his young men off with these instructions. Go to Carmel, approach Nabal, greet him in my name. Peace, life and peace to you, peace to your household, peace to everyone here. I heard that it's sheep shearing time. Here's the point. When your shepherds were camped near us, we didn't take advantage of them. They didn't lose a thing the whole time they were with us in Carmel. Ask your young men and they'll tell you. What I'm asking is that you be generous with my men and share the feast. Give whatever your heart tells you to your servants and to me, David, your son. It's sheep shearing time, as you've heard. You know sheep shearing time. There's, you know, we would do it every, every fall in New England, Right? So there's the obvious part of cutting the wool back, but there's the other process of spotting and marking the sheep to make them different from the other sheep owners. And at the end of all this, this actually happens in winter to late spring as, as, as summer is about to roll in. At the end of all this, there's a gigantic feast. We've made it through another year. Fire up the barbecue. It is time to party. Oh, and it's time to pay the workers too. A bit of context on David at this part of the story. David, of course, has killed Goliath years ago, but right now he's on the run from King Saul, and he has 600 men, soldiers, who are considered enemies of the state. They are renegades, they are rebels. And the text opens by telling us that Israel's priest, Samuel, has died. And this is scripture's way of saying, the rules have changed now. And if every, there's a void in, in the ethics here. So if people seem a little bit meaner, a little bit crueler or a little bit, you know, more out of character is partially due to the loss of the moral compass in the death of Samuel. It's like the wild, wild Middle East, okay? Now think of David and his soldiers as like a security firm looking for work. The local multi-millionaire has shepherds and flocks exposed on the mountainside for months And shepherding was dangerous work from the wolves and for raiders who wanted to steal these sheep for profit. So David and his men figured that they would offer those shepherds protection, and those shepherds stayed in David's protection, and everybody presumed that Nabal was going to take care of them all. So David sends a modest 10 young men to say, hey, we did this good thing for you. Whatever you feel in your heart that you should give us, we'll take. And here's Nabal's answer. Nabal tore into them. Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? The country's full of runaway servants these days. Do you think I'm going to take good bread and and wine and meat freshly butchered for my sheep shearers and give it to men I've never laid eyes on? Who knows where they're coming from? A few things to note here. First, Nabal knows exactly who David is. Everyone knows who David is. He's the giant killer. It's not just rhetorical, it's completely dismissive. And he's insulting David to his own servants. David is a nobody, I don't care. Why should I take my food and give it to you guys? In today's world, he might say, we don't have a contract with you, we don't have a, a prearranged agreement, You don't, now get off my lawn. <laughs> David finds out, and he is livid. I mean, he grabs his sword and 400 armed men. We're going to Nabal and we're wiping everybody out. Last time he sent 10 men. Now he's showing up with an army of 400 men. They're mean and they're hungry and they got swords. One of Abigail's servants finds out and says, David's men are coming to kill them. And suddenly Abigail finds herself in the middle of two powerful men on a collision course. She's caught in the middle. She wants to be loyal to her husband. And at the same time, she knows that David has a legitimate complaint. She's in a complicated, vulnerable middle spot. And it could go bad either way. The message translation says this. Abigail flew into action. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep dressed out and ready for cooking, A bushel of roasted grain, a hundred raisin cakes, and two hundred fig cakes. And she had it all loaded on some donkeys. And then she said to her servants, go ahead and pave the way for me. I'm right behind you. But she said nothing to her husband, Nabal. As she was riding her donkey, descending into a ravine, David and his men were descending from the other end. So they met there on the road. And David had just said, that sure was a waste, guarding everything this man had out in the wild so that nothing he had was lost. And now he rewards me with insults? That's a real slap in my face. May God do his worst to me if Nabal and every cur in his misbegotten brood aren't dead meat by morning. I love the message translation, don't you? (laughs) (laughs) This is the Bible? Yes, it is. Now, just a quick sidebar comment about some of the violent language and imagery that we have here in the Old Testament. First, understand that, that this was the way that the ancient world worked. It was violent, it was a winner-take-all kind of environment. Again, there's no contracts, there's no lawyers, there's none of that. And, and secondly, some of these kinds of threats, I mean, like they were kind of like military saber-rattling, okay, like kind of like trash talk. Now, David seems intent that he's going to kill everybody there, so, but we must remember, either way, the Bible is not affirming this, simply reporting it. The text continues in verse 23. As soon as Abigail saw David, she got off her donkey and fell on her knees at his feet, her face to the ground in Hamish, saying, My master, let me take the blame. Let me speak to you. Listen to what I have to say. Don't dwell on what that brute Nabal did. He acts out the meaning of his name. Nabal, fool. Foolishness oozes from him. (laughs) It's so good. I wasn't there when the young men my master sent arrived. I didn't see them. And now, my master, as God lives, as you live, God has kept you from avenging this, uh, from this avenging murder. And may your enemies, all who seek my master's harm, end up like Nabal. Now take this gift I, your servant girl, have brought to my master and give it to the young men who follow in the steps of my master. Wow. I mean, here, Abigail is in the middle of two very powerful men. How is she going to navigate this complexity? She is the most vulnerable person in this story, and yet she courageously steps into the middle. I mean, I wonder what was running through her mind as as she was making her way down that ravine. How do I know that David is not gonna kill me anyway after after he takes all these gifts? What's going to stop him from going up to the estate and carrying out his plan? Did she have any of those thoughts? And why would she get involved in the first place? I mean, why not just send the servants there and act as, as, as a messenger? Or stay in the house and try to talk some sense into your foolish husband? Instead, bravely, she enters into the middle. And she doesn't beg for her life to be spared. In fact, she does the opposite. She bows deep face first into the ground in a position of extreme vulnerability and says, I'll take the blame for the foolishness and the wickedness of my husband. And she calls David her master no less than six times. Abigail. It's here the Lord works. Right in the middle. The Lord gives courage, humility, and wisdom to speak truth to power. Though she identifies herself as a servant and she tells David that the man you want to kill, my husband, though he's a desperate fool, this isn't really a capital crime. She finds a bold and yet shrewd way of reminding David that he is overreacting. And, he will, and we will read soon, if David carries out this plan, he will actually dishonor God for this violence. Friends, it's staggering. It's an incredible scene. There are 401 people there. She's the only one without a sword, and she's the most powerful figure in the story. What can we learn in this passage when we are caught in the middle? Well, today I want to show you three ways that God can empower you in the middle. The first, in the middle, God empowered courage can change hearts. God empowered courage. Can change hearts. Abigail is empowered. She is courageous, and David is just starting to get there. And so might you and me in whatever middle that we find ourselves in. It may be complicated, it may be messy, it may even be dangerous, but the Lord can meet us there and empower us. Well, to pick up the story that I began earlier. After sending out the letters to, to the youth group families, I was, I was back in my church office processing some of the initial reactions of telling everybody that we're going to the Bahamas to serve at the All Saints AIDS camp. Legitimate concern mingled with the feedback that comes from the shock and accumulated frustration and, you know, like, what, what's he thinking? And why can't we do anything normal for once? And what, what, what about Belize or Costa Rica? And these types of things. I was in the middle of my little pity party of it all and my cell phone rang and it was from one of the moms of our youth group and she was amongst the most respected people in our church and I really admired her. Veronica was like the ideal youth group mom. She had a minivan that she let us borrow all the time for our trips. She had a pool. She hosted our Super Bowl parties. She was fantastic and she was also a personal encourager of me. Every now and then, Uh, She she sent me a million encouragements, but every now and then, she'd call me up and say, hey, Tim, I love what you're trying to do. She had this sweet, gentle voice, great interpersonal skills. Love what you're trying to do. I think maybe next time, maybe consider this. And it was always like a nice nudge and gentle rebuke, and I really respected her for that, so I always took her calls. And she calls me today, and she says, Tim, I got your letter. Wow. Wow. Didn't feel good, and I wanted her support. Tim, do you, do you know what I do for a living? And I'm stuttering and stammering. I'm like, I, you know, I yeah. I, you you work in, in pharmaceutical research. Yes, yes. I do you know what I research? I'm like, uh, yeah. Uh, I think you research diseases. <laughs> yes, Tim. I I actually head the department specifically on antiretroviral drugs for HIV and AIDS. And I held my breath. I'm like, how unlucky am I? <laughs> it's not even that big of a church. And here is an expert on HIV and AIDS research. And I just felt like I was gonna bow my head and the sword was gonna come down. I had no idea the executioner had a nice smile and great interpersonal skills. <laughs> but like, that was a surprise to me then. But the real surprise was when she said, and I'm just so excited that you're doing this. Bless you, this is amazing. God bless you for having the courage to do this. Yeah? (laughs) Yeah, 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 that's right. And then she said, I'm so excited that my two children are going to serve the same herding population that I have dedicated my career to. I'm sending in the deposits today. I'm signing them up today. I am just so excited. Is there anything that you need from me? Veronica, I have a, a parent's night coming up next Wednesday and I could use some help with a question and answer time from an expert who has a PhD on, on HIV and AIDS research. I would love it if you were there. She said, absolutely, I'll be there. Tim, we have to remind everybody, we have to remember to continue saying this, that we pose a greater threat to them in their vulnerable health state than they do to us. Oh, Veronica, I'll I'll do my best to keep, keep repeating that. Friends, throughout my ministry, throughout my life, I have committed a hundred, a thousand mistakes. This is one episode where the Lord helped me get it right. He helped me right there in the middle And he gave me courage right there in the middle. What are you in the middle of? The Lord met Abigail right in the middle. I mean, listen to her brave words that that God speaks through her. She says, forgive my presumption. My God is at work in my master, developing a rule solid and dependable. My master fights God's battles. And as long as you live, no evil will stick to you. When God completes all the goodness he has promised my master and sets you up as prince over Israel, my master will not have this dead weight in his heart, the guilt of avenging murder. And when God has worked things for good for my master, remember me. I mean, how does she know all these things? I mean, she is speaking so prophetically. The Lord is speaking prophetically through Abigail to David. God is using her right there in the middle. A woman who had no power in that culture, but is obviously empowered by the spirit of God. And she she is speaking to God's chosen servant, David. And David now is convicted. He's in a repentant state. And he's turning away from this violence, and he's turning to trust in God, and he's finally getting it. And he says, Blessed be God, the God of Israel. He sent you to meet me. And blessed be your good sense. Bless you for keeping me from murder and taking charge of looking out for me. A close call. As God lives, the God of Israel who kept me from hurting you, if you had not come quickly as you, st- as you did stopping me in my tracks, by morning there would have been nothing left of Nabal but dead meat. Then David accepted the gift that she brought him and said, return home in peace. I've heard what you've said and I'll do what you've asked. David not only accepts Abigail's food and provisions, but also receives her words of committing no violence and then receives her blessing. Abigail is saved, her servants are saved, Nabal is saved, but David is also saved from violence and offending God. In the middle, in the middle, God-empowered humility can change hearts. In the middle, God-empowered humility can change hearts. You see, David is anxious and stressed and pushed to the limit. Again, he's on the run from Saul, and he runs into another powerful force in Nabal. And he's feeling the pressure from both sides, and he's feeling squeezed. And in the previous chapter, Saul tries to kill David. And many of you have heard the story, but to summarize it, they're in the cave, and and David has a a moment to actually kill Saul instead, and he chooses not to do that. And you, as the reader of scripture, you are impressed by his righteousness and his restraint. But then in this chapter, in this chapter, David completely overreacts and brings 400 men over an unpaid bill. And you, as the reader of scripture, are wondering, what is happening to this guy? Last chapter, he was trusting God to provide and protect. This chapter, he's taking matters and swords into his own hands. We have to remember that David, like us, is in the process of being formed by God. In the process of being formed by God. It's so interesting to see what happens next. David returns back to his camp. Abigail's about to return home, and she's going to tell Nabal what she just did. I mean, I wonder what's going through her mind as she's walking back up that ravine. Will he kick her out of the mansion? Will he hurt her? Worse? I mean, it's clear that they don't have a great marriage. Most commentators assume that this is an arranged marriage. But when she walks in, Nabal is having a feast in his own honor. Who knows who is invited? I mean, his wife wasn't there. I mean, was this just a gathering of yes men and people who were too afraid not to come? Nabal isn't interested in community or relationships. He's only interested in himself. Well, he's so drunk that that Abigail has to wait till morning to tell him what she did. And when she does, the text says this. But in the morning, after Nabal has sobered up, she told him the whole story. Right then and there, he had a heart attack and fell into a coma. And about 10 days later, God finished him off and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, blessed be God who has stood up for me against Nabal's insults and kept me from an evil act and let Nabal's evil boomerang back on him. God delivers Abigail again. I mean, there's no need for David to kill Nabal because God is going to judge Nabal. And we always have to remember this, to lay down our swords and let God judge I mean, we have to invite God to empower our virtues, not our tools of violence. Once again, we can learn from Abigail. In the middle, God-empowered wisdom can change hearts. God-empowered wisdom can change hearts. God has empowered Abigail with courage, with humility, and wisdom. And all, of these, all three of these virtues continue to manifest themselves in this story. The passage keeps telling us that Nabal is foolish and cruel and completely self-absorbed. His heart cannot experience what Abigail, his wife's heart, is championing. Nabal doesn't pursue the virtues of courage or humility and wisdom because he's blind to all of that. He's even blind to his wife's beauty and intelligence. He has no need for courage because he thinks he's invincible. He has no need for humility because he's too proud. He has no need for wisdom because he thinks he knows it all. And though the text says that God struck him dead the following week, we we might wonder if his his humanity died a long time ago. The name of the series is Humans of the Bible. And we are inspired by so many of them. The way that we relate to them, the the, the way that, that God uses them, and the way that we hope that God uses us. This is why we name our children after characters that we encounter in scripture. I'm named Timothy. You know many Davids. We know Abigails. But I know you have not met a single Nabal. You haven't. You haven't. Well, I wanna tell you how the actual mission trip went to the All Saints AIDS camp. This happened 10 years ago in 2009. And I'll never forget getting off the minibus in that hot July sun and smelling the filth and the urine. I thought, I'm not gonna get used to this. And we stepped in the middle of it all, and we got to work. And it impacted all of us on so many levels, and there's so many stories, but there's one that I wanna finish with. We had a wonderful team of students, about 20 of us went, including the youth leaders, and we had Patrick's and Maria's and Ryan's and Maya's and Haley's and Sarah's. And we also had a girl named Abby. A girl named Abby. And she was 15 when she arrived to the AIDS camp. And to paraphrase her words to me, she felt caught in the middle of so many things in her life. She was the oldest of four, so you have to, you're in the middle of your parents and your younger siblings. She came from an incredible family. She went to public school, and she was an active member of our youth group, and she told me that everyone had expectations for her, the, the healthy ones that your parents give, her, you know, her school friends, and, and of course, all the different competing messages that, we, that young women especially receive in culture. Also, growing up in that part of the country, just outside New York, there's the consumption and the materialism that society just, just throws upon you. There were things that she was discovering about herself, and on her good days, she was also trying to figure out what did the Lord want from her? And her response to being caught in the middle of all that was, was, to, was to just go into a state of numbness. She said, I just felt so numb during those teenage years of my life. That's, that's the way that I responded, I was numb. And she told me it was in the middle of that camp Just 10 miles away from the fancy resorts in the Nassau Bahamas, in the middle of the filth and the stench, in the sweltering heat of July, where we were mixing concrete and hanging out with the residents, that is where God awakened me out of the numbness of it all. That was where Jesus had given her identity and mission and calling and set her life, awakened her life new again. She was experiencing life and so were we. We weren't obviously experts in mixing cement and building a sidewalk. But it's actually relatively easy to learn, to be honest with you. And one of the better parts of it was, was the, the time that we got to spend with the residents. And I would see the girls like Abby paint the women's nails at the camp. And the guys, we would we, walk around and we would we'd be like sports almanacs, trying to like give updates to what was going on in the world of sports to the men. And we would sing songs, we would sing hymns, and new worship anthems, and fun show tunes, and all that sort of thing that awesome youth groups do. In addition to that stretch of concrete sidewalk, the residents there were experiencing kindness. Kindness that they had not experienced in a while. See, the thing is, you end up at an AIDS camp like that, not just because you have AIDS, but because you have destroyed every single relationship in your life, and there's nowhere else for you to go. And so you have to go to this this camp in the middle of nowhere that doesn't even have a sidewalk, that has no government assistance, and you have to rely on youth groups from places like New Jersey and Wisconsin and, true story, Chelmsford, Massachusetts would come later on. And you have to rely on their goodness to show God's love to them. And they were awakened by that, and so were we. Friends, I want to encourage you, as our students come back from their cross-cultural learning experiences, to take the time and ask them what God has just showed them. There are certain lessons that you can only learn once you leave your zip code. And I want you to ask them about it. I tell you this story, also I should say this too, Abby turns 16 years old in the middle of that week. She knows where she's going to be when she turns 16. And I'm just fascinated that during a time where like, there's a reality TV show called Sweet 16 where like, they throw these elaborate parties for 16-year-olds, she's there at this AIDS camp, and we're celebrating with a store-bought cake that we got on the way back to the dorms. And that's where she becomes 16, and what a way to celebrate life. What a way to celebrate life. I tell you this story because wherever your middle is, you might need some encouragement today. You might need to experience something like this right now. Maybe you're feeling numb to it all like Abby was. Maybe similar to how I was feeling, you feel caught in the middle of legitimate concern and God's leading. Maybe you feel on the run like David is, and you're caught between one who is hunting you and one who is refusing you, and you're in the middle of that. Wherever it is, throughout life, you are going to be caught in the middle, like Abigail. So what do you need from God in this middle? Often it is only in the middle where you can experience God's empowerment. Often it is only in the middle where you can experience God's empowerment. And so friends, may you always remember and may you always experience that in the middle, God-empowered courage, humility, and wisdom can change hearts. It can change yours, it can change mine, and it can change those you are in the middle with. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the power of your scriptures and the beauty of your scriptures and how inspiring and how they teach us. We pray, Lord, that as we leave this space, that you would continue to be at work in our lives. So wherever we find ourselves in, whatever complicated middle situation we're in, we pray, Lord, that you would give us this courage, that you would give us this humility, and that you would give us this wisdom, just like you gave Abigail. We thank you, Lord, for meeting us today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.